join me in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I believe this passage this morning really has two things that are speaking, maybe shouting to us today. And I believe when you look at this passage, just a few verses, 18 through 22, I think we see one that is easy to preach and one that is difficult. As we look at a suffering like no other. Now, I believe a suffering like no other, the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, is easy to preach. But make sure we understand something. The suffering of Jesus will never be compared to any suffering we go through in this life. It's a suffering like no other. And we see it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Peter writes to believers who are, he's challenging to stand in the midst of persecution. He writes, for Christ also suffered for sins. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. For Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. We're going to take a little break here, and we're going to have a word of prayer. Uh, Gene Foley's not feeling very well. And Dr. Hope is with him in the, in the lobby, okay? Dolores just went out to be with him. So can we pray for him? Amen? Those at home, pray with us, okay? God, I pray for Gene. I thank you for him. What a man of God. And I pray that uh, you give Dr. Hope wisdom and just help him to be able to help him and any, any, anybody else that, that we need. So, Lord, touch our brother. We ask you to do that. He, know, he knows what suffering's about, but he also knows that his faith is in you, Christ alone. So thank you not only for dying for Gene Foley, thank you for dying for us. And if you agree with me in prayer, say amen. Amen, thank you, thank you. For Christ also suffered once for sins. This is an interesting passage because it reminds us of the unique offer that Jesus makes to us. It reminds us of the unique sacrifice that Christ makes for us, and it also represents the limit of that sacrifice. The Bible says one time. For Christ suffered once. He went to the cross once. Folks, that's another reason I believe this morning that Scripture supports eternal security. Jesus is not going back to the cross to pay for sin. When he died on Calvary's cross, he paid for past sin, he, prayed for the, or he died for the sins of the day, and he died for future sins. And since you and I weren't there 2,000 years ago, he certainly died for the future sins of us, right? And I praise the Lord that Scripture helps us see the big picture when it comes to a suffering like no other. Why? Because under the old covenant, the Jews would make sacrifices repeatedly. They would do it again and again and again. And then the following year, they would go through the same steps and do 
the same thing, especially at Passover. It was a picture of Christ dying, the Passover lamb, and, and the, the high priest would take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it at the altar and, and take the blood from the lamb and put it on the head of another, uh, another animal that would be led out into the wilderness, reminding us that when Jesus died for our sins, listen to me, he not only died to forgive us, but he removed them. He removed them. And I believe one of the hardest things for you and I contained in this fleshly body is to forget things when we've been hurt. How about a little amen going on in here this morning? Amen? It is. It's so difficult sometimes when we've been hurt and when we've been bruised to forget. But folks, I'm telling you, the God we're talking about today has no problem with forgiving because he paid for it. And he, not, he has no problem forgetting. He's removed it as far as the east is from the west. And that's the grace of God. You know, if you really want to show people what Jesus looks like in your life, boy, this is, I need help here, is to forgive people. And you might be here and say, well, Billy Greg, I was just raised in an environment where that's very difficult to do. I'm here to tell you that if you're a born-again child of God, you can do it because there's one who has saved you that has told you that there's no way you'll be able to compare to the suffering he went through. And if Jesus was perfect, how many of you believe that Jesus was perfect? Amen? Listen, no sin. He never did anything wrong. He never said anything wrong. And this one is, this, this is what blows your mind. He never thought anything wrong. Not everybody loved him. Not everybody received him. But my understanding is when he died on the cross we just sang about, that offer of salvation is for anybody. Whosoever will can come. Can come. And Jesus died so that we could have hope, but the scripture says he died once for sins. The just for the unjust, what does that mean? The, the innocent for the guilty? The innocent for the guilty. Listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 7. He doesn't need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9.26, he then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that is appointed unto man wants to die, but after this the judgment. Verse 28 says, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, and to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, when you look at this verse by itself, you'll say, well, Brother Greg, you're talking about something difficult to preach. Man, when I look at verse 18, it just flows because a Christian understands the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We recognize he's not like the other sacrifices. As a matter of fact, when Jesus died at Calvary and rose from the grave, he put, he, he put the end to the sacrificial system to do any life-changing thing. Who did? Christ did, according to verse 18. What did he do? He suffered 
who died a vicarious death that would take place one time. And he willingly laid down his own life. What was the target? The unjust, the guilty. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, it's you. You say, Brother Greg, why are you, why are you pointing at me? Because it was me. It was me. When I was a church kid, I knew all the answers. My preacher come to my house, I could tell him what he wanted to hear, but I was a 14-year-old teenager who grew up in church that was lost. Make sure you have a relationship with Christ. And what was the reason? That he might bring us to God. That he might bridge the gap that was breached because of sin. One song says, he built a bridge with three nails and two pieces of wood. The bridge called Calvary. The way to God because of the precious love of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I believe we can shout amen to that today, can we not? You say, Brother Greg, that's not hard to preach. I could preach that. Amen, I know you could. But then this passage takes a turn. Verse 19. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. You might say, okay, 19 and 20, they don't sound too bad, Brother Greg. What's your take? Let me tell you something. One commentator said there's about 90 variations of what people think this says. I'm going to share with you a few of them, and when we finish, you may say, well, that's not what I believe. And we can just get in line with everybody else. Because even some of the most trusted scholars recognize wrestling with this passage. Years ago, Kathy Ebbing, many of you remember Kathy, she was a student at Muskingum College. One night, she called me and said, Brother Greg, Brother Greg, I'm sitting in my dorm with a bunch of my friends, and we're talking about what Jesus did. Where did he go when he died on the cross? What did he do? That's a question that a lot of people have. But when you think about so many interpretations, it helps us really uh, understand that this is a passage that people do wrestle with. And for somebody to come and say, this is exactly what this means, I'm not so sure they've got it all together yet. Because this is something that I believe the Lord will help us. Well, first of all, first of all, some believe that, and some will state this like number one, that his living spirit went to be with the demon spirits condemned in the Old Testament. He was saying in spite of his death, he was the victor. There's victory over sin. One variation is that he descended to uh, Hades and proclaimed judgment to the fallen angels. There is victory over sin. There's victory over sin. Another describes it as Jesus descending into the realm of Hades known as paradise, where Old Testament saints were waiting until atonement had finally been accomplished. You say, okay, those sound, those sound like they could be real. Uh, maybe you have a life application Bible here today. Its note says, we recognize this passage is not completely clear. 
the traditional explanation is that between his death and resurrection, Jesus announced salvation to the faithful believers who had been waiting during the Old Testament era. Amen. Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53 says, And the graves were opened when Jesus died on Calvary. And the graves were opened, listen, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, listen, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection. A lot of times we say, oh, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was the first fruits. That's what this is telling us too, the same thing. They went into the holy city then and appeared to many. Some believe that Jesus, when he descended, this is a picture of him offering salvation and another chance to be saved. I want to encourage you and challenge you to understand this morning that the Bible does not promise another chance to be saved. I want you to understand something, that God has given you a life. He's given you a window of time to make a decision for him. You'll say, well, Brother Greg, I thought that even in the tribulation period when the church is gone, that there will be some that are saved. The answer is there will be. But what makes you think a person will be saved when their life is on the line, when they reject Christ in a world and a life in which we live now, where he says, come freely, I'll give you abundant life, and it will start here, and I'll take you to heaven when I die. Folks, I'm telling you, the devil's a deceiver. The devil's a liar. The devil is just uh, waiting. He, he's, he's, he's lurking around like a roaring lion. Uh, Jordy is all into sonic hedgehogs. Y'all know what I'm saying? Some of you older folks don't. You're just laughing because that's a funny name. I'm really not sure I don't know who Sonic is, but I know this. Jordy dressed up like him. He stands and taps his watch and taps his foot, whatever that means. I believe that's the way the devil is. I believe the devil is looking and he's waiting, and he's just timing it right to watch you get into the wrong place with the wrong crowd and begin to do his work on you that would get you to doubt whether or not you're even saved. But I'm glad this morning that because of Jesus Christ, we have hope knowing that anybody can come to him. Anybody can, but the Bible does not promise a second chance. Maybe you're here today and you say, Brother Greg, I've walked away from God time and time again. Then praise the Lord you're still breathing and praise the Lord you're still here because there's hope for you this morning. There's hope for you this morning. Still others believe that the answer to this passage is found right here in the passage. Verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. I was watching a game show recently. I think it was Jeopardy. And what part of it on Jeopardy is when they write their answer down and it pops in front of them on the screen? What is that called? Final Jeopardy. And uh, the question was, 
How, according to the book of uh, the Old Testament, how many people survived the flood? That was the question. So, and they're writing, and you could tell that they were wrestling with it. You know, you know when you know the answer. I'm putting it down quick, Bill. But man, when people start doing this, Marcia, you're, you're thinking they're either getting ready to shine light on their Bible knowledge or this could be bad for this pastor who's on Jeopardy. And they came to the, you know, you show your answer. Or, no, it pops up, I think. No, no, you show it. And then the money will come. Forget what I'm saying. It pops up, okay? It does pop up. The first lady. How many people were saved according to the Old Testament from the flood? The first lady goes, proudly she weeps. 300. And then you could tell from that point on that the other ones weren't in good shape. And the host says, only the family of Noah. Why? Because they were in the ark. And I want to tell you, uh, as a matter of fact, Corey Farnsworth shared this with me after the first service. Great, great line. He said they should have said, Brother Greg, all. How many were saved in the ark? All of them. And do you realize that that crowd could have had more saved had they heeded the words of Noah? No doubt they thought he was crazy. No doubt, if, if you've been to the ark down in Kentucky, it's quite fascinating. Some of the greatest woodwork you've ever seen in your life. But I'm telling you, God had a plan of salvation, and he said, if you just come into the ark, you'll be saved. Some believe that the picture here is that Noah is proclaiming victory to that antediluvian crowd, that pre-flood crowd of wickedness that had not received Christ, had not placed their faith in the words of Noah and entered the ark into salvation. And as Peter writes, it's interesting that that's what he includes. Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, about 100 years. The Bible says in Genesis 5, Noah was 500 years old when he had children. Genesis 7, 6, and 7, he was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. That, that Jesus had, through the Holy Spirit, used the preaching of Noah, yet that message had been rejected. And he is now proclaiming the news that there's victory in Christ. Noah was rejected, but how many times is Christ rejected? You say, Brother Greg, I've shared my faith with a friend, but they, they, just, they just reject me. No, they don't reject you. They reject Christ. Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, if you look at verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. You see, Peter's writing to those that are suffering. And he says there's no suffering in this world compared to what Jesus went through for you. 
and we need to understand some things. While there are different interpretations about what this passage says, one thing is clear. The first is this, the good news of salvation and victory over sin, it's not limited to anybody. It's not limited. The gospel is for all. The Holy Spirit can crack the toughest nut. He can change the hardest life. He can forgive the wounded sinner. I praise God for that, that the good news of the gospel is not limited. So as Christ proclaims victory, man, we can sing victory in Jesus with assurance, with assurance. It's also important to understand that the gospel has been preached in the past, in the Old Testament, as well as the present. It's important to understand that the gospel has gone to the dead as well as the living. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And don't you ever think that you're somehow the exception, that you're going to get around it and it doesn't pertain to you. He gives everybody an opportunity to come. He gives everyone an opportunity to come. And my prayer is that you would not harden your heart when he calls. Some have said, Brother Greg, how do you know? How do you know when God is speaking to you? And I would ask you the same question, Christian. How, how do you know when God is speaking to you? For me, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fullness in my spirit that leads to emotion. I mean, it comes out. It, 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 God is speaking to me. What should I do? What should my response be? And a lot of times when God speaks, we don't do anything. We just hope that Brother Greg will wrap it up and Marsha will close the song down and, and we'll just kind of close the service and I can get out of here before he asks me to do anything else. And you recognize that God is moving. Now, now I want to say this very lovingly and hope you understand it. Okay? Oftentimes we have medical issues that take place as of this morning and we need to address those. Amen? And I thank God for you that help as needed when needed. But here's something, listen to me carefully, everybody look at me. Just getting up because you're thirsty, quit it. Bring you a bottle of water to church. And I'll tell you why. We get to the invitation, and oftentimes we act like the service is over, and I'm telling you, God may just begin to get started and someone gets distracted because of something I did. You'll say, well, Brother Greg, I, it's, it's medical. I understand all of that, and I would never say anything to you about that. You, under, you know that. But if you feel like you have to go in and out, sit in the back. That's okay. You say, Brother Greg, what, what are you saying? I'm saying I heard a preacher the other day. This was sent to me from Kyle, a son of all. I shared this Wednesday night. He was right here in the church, and he was preaching, and all of a sudden he said, quit snapping that gum. Just like that. Holy cow. He said, this is the house of God. Don't you show disrespect to me or the word of God? And I'm telling you, you could hear a pin drop in that church. Let me tell you what we've lost. We've lost reverence in the house of God. And folks, listen to me. Listen to me. If we had a God who lovingly loved us enough and says anybody can be saved, proclaims it to the captive, 
we can be reminded that Jesus is alive and he's worthy of our attention, even in a world that says, I'm going to get text during the message and I'm going to I'm going to communicate with people and I'm going to do this. Worship is not like everything else in our schedule. No, no, it's easy to preach this, but we have to do it. And God is worthy, is he not? He's worthy. You know why I also think that this last issue with the picture of Noah is important? Because it helps me rectify maybe kind of a, not a contradiction, but maybe... How do, how, you, how do you describe that? And it's when Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. You'll be with me. And, and the good news of the gospel is that that offer is available. And while I may not be able to express it just and articulate it, in bullet points, I recognize that the love of God is for everybody. And I'm grateful that Jesus was not ashamed to express it. The Bible says he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. God doesn't want you to go to hell. And don't you ever say, God, I'm going to hell because God's sending me there. No, he's not. Your unbelief is. He's made a way so that you and I can be saved. So if that's the first part of this passage Say, okay, we got through that. No, there's another. It deals with baptism. It, it deals with baptism. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse uh, 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus. I have had people point this passage out to me and say, you have to be baptized to be a Christian. The key word in this passage is antitype. It's a picture. It's a pattern. It's an earthly expression of a spiritual reality. Folks, that's exactly what baptism is. When you give your life to Christ and you're baptized, you're buried in his likeness and raised to walk in newness of life. It's a picture of being saved. I praise the Lord. I praise the Lord. That baptism is for a Christian. Everyone who's baptized should be a Christian. And when you're baptized, it doesn't make you more of a Christian. It just simply makes you an obedient Christian. Now, Peter's saying this is a perfect type. Baptism is a perfect type of salvation. Saved people get baptized. Um... You say, well, okay, Brother Greg, well, what about Acts 2.38? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. couple things. First of all, the Bible says repent first. Secondly, for the remission of sins. For remission also means because of. Because you've been saved, be baptized. And folks, I'm here to tell you this morning that if you really want to see God move in your life, you've got to start looking at obedience and you're going to see God do things that you did not think he could do in your life where does that begin here's where it begins for some of you this morning you claim to be a Christian you know Christ is your savior you believe Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sin but yet you've never followed in believers baptism 
In a minute, we're giving an invitation, and I'm asking you to come today, and I'm asking you to join Dee Wooten, who came this morning in the 830 service. There is no shame in it. Amen, church? There's no shame in it. What you're saying is, okay, Brother Greg, I need to take a step. Why do I need to take that step? Because remember, Scripture often answers itself in Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3, but the answer, I'll read it in its entirety. There's also an anti-type which now saves up baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Christian, if you're here and you've never been baptized, if you want a good conscience, then be obedient. What do I need to do, Brother Greg? Present yourself for baptism. Pastor, I'm afraid of water. I, I understand that. But I also understand if you trust us, we'll take care of you every step of the way. Amen? I praise the Lord for that. While it doesn't claim to clean us, remember? Baptism, not the removal of filth of the flesh. It allows us to have a good conscience toward God. When we submit ourselves to the New Testament model of baptism, immersion. Well, Brother Greg, I was sprinkled when I was young. Praise the Lord for parents that maybe did that. That's not Bible baptism. Immersion. Uh, how, how, how serious is it? John the Baptist sees somebody walking toward him, recognizes this the Lamb of God. I can't baptize you, you baptize me. Jesus said, let it be done. The King of glory submitted himself to show us what obedience looks like. I praise the Lord for that. I praise the Lord for that. Let's close it. Let's close this. The Bible tells us that baptism is a witness to the world of your new walk and life with Christ. You want a clear conscience. It begins with an obedient heart. An obedient heart. Who's the life changer? The sacrificial lamb, the Lord Jesus. The victorious king over sin and death. He wants a relationship with you and died on the cross so that we could have it. I want you to stand, every head bowed, every eye closed. Musicians are coming, every head bowed, every eye closed. Listen to me carefully. If you're here this morning and you're a born-again believer and you know without a shadow of a 